Happy Sabbath to each one. This weekend is entitled Uniquely Adventist. And we learned last night that what makes Adventists unique is the sanctuary message. It is our contribution to the Reformation. Ours is the last church, and this is the final contribution. It is the sanctuary. And in the sanctuary, we not only find our identity as a people, but we also find our message. And simply put, no sanctuary, no Adventist church. It is that simple. We are a people born out of the sanctuary. So it is my privilege to speak on it, and I will share more as to why. But the sanctuary uh, was given to Israel as a mechanism of instruction to teach Israel how God was going to deal with the sin problem. It was to help them understand that Sin would be destroyed in the end, but a way had been made to save the sinner. Today, the sanctuary points us to what Jesus has done for us in the past, what he's doing for us today, and what he is about to do for us. Now, for this series, there may be some here that perhaps are not well-versed in the sanctuary. I'm hoping that today's presentation will lay a foundation that we are going to build on uh, in the remaining uh, meetings that we will have together. And for those who uh, already are familiar with the sanctuary, by the grace of God, this will be a refresher for you. And so what I decided to do is to present uh, this meeting in a practical way. And I shared last night that I am practical by a fault. Um, I need to understand how things work and why they work. And that's just the way I think. And so this presentation that I'll be giving this weekend is not blue means this and gold means that, as important as that is, but rather a practical approach and experience with God. And so today, for this presentation, I'll be sharing how the sanctuary is a model for prayer. And I like praying through the sanctuary for two reasons. Um, uh, One of the reasons is that uh, I am like the ADD poster child. Uh, I have the attention span of a gnat with ADD. And when when I'm praying... My mind wanders this way and that way. And I don't know if you have that problem where you start out praying and you end up filling out your Walmart list in your mind. Uh, but that's me. Uh, also, you may have experienced praying and maybe even falling asleep and then trying to remember where you left off. But the sanctuary has helped me to maintain my focus as I am talking to the Lord. There is another reason why praying to the sanctuary has been a blessing to me, is that the sanctuary prepares my heart to approach a holy God. Uh, There there are cues, there are reminders to me of who it is that I am speaking to. But not only that, but the sanctuary actually prompts me on what I need to be praying for. And so these are are two reasons why I like praying through the sanctuary. Now, I want to say that it's not the only way to pray. 
And I'm not advocating that. It is interesting to note, however, that if you look on, in Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9, as well as Christ's prayer that he taught the disciples, you will find very similar elements in the sanctuary. And I don't believe that that is coincidental at all. Now, you should have handouts given to you. Two of them, as a matter of fact. One is my sermon notes, and the other is a little flyer uh, that you might want to use during your devotional time just as a reminder. Now, what I'm going to do this morning, uh, and, and I shared last night why I use handouts. There are three reasons. Number one, I want you to be able to, to, be able to, to focus, and you can write notes on there as we go along. Um, the other is I want you to be able to go home and check out the preacher and make sure that what he's telling lines up with Scripture. And the third reason is that once you've studied it, God has given you an opportunity now to share it, to share it with others. And so these, these are the reasons for the handouts. Now this morning we're going to look at the sanctuary from pre, three perspectives. Number one, we're going to look at it as to how, um, how it related to the ministry of the priest. Uh, the priest, of course, his whole life in his work in the sanctuary was a play out of the plan of salvation. So we're going to take a look at the work of the priest and, and his role at the various uh, furnishings of the sanctuary. What was he to do there? And then we're going to take a look at how that role of the priest was to point us to Christ. Because the sanctuary is all about Jesus. By the way, knowing that, isn't that sufficient reason to study it? It's all about Jesus. So how does the role of the priest point us to Christ? And then the third uh, perspective is how that prompts me to pray. So with that introduction, well, you have already knelt before the master. I'd like to do that. But if you'd bow your heads with me, uh, and as I pray, um, I would encourage you also to be praying for me. I'm going to kneel now. Father in heaven, I am so excited for this opportunity, but more than that, I am deeply honored. You are the great, high, and holy one who inhabits eternity. And you have given this lump of clay, animated clay, an opportunity to be your representative, an honor that is far too great for me. And I thank you, Lord, for this, really, this privilege of which I could never, ever deserve or, or earn. And Savior, um, as we gather here, uh, really, dear God, you, you are going to be presenting to us a message that not only is going to prepare us for your coming, but through us, Lord, to prepare a world. And so we are asking for the forgiveness of our sins. We are not worthy, dear God, of your presence. But the blood of Jesus makes us such. And may the blood of Jesus wash away our sin that his righteousness may cover us and that this place will truly be your sanctuary. We pray, Savior, that your angels of light will be here to impress our hearts and minds that, Lord, you will communicate to each of us right where we're at and right what we need to hear. And so, Savior, now as your instrument, I pray that I will be completely yielded to you. May your mind be given to me. I pray, Lord, that you'll bring to me the illustrations that are needed now, and may this hour be yours, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to advance some slides here. We went over that last night. And we're going to begin, we're going to begin with a quote here from Great Controversy 518. And it says, Satan well knows that all whom he can lead to neglect prayer and the searching of the scriptures 
will be overcome by his attacks. Therefore, he invents every possible device to engross the mind. All the devil has to do is distract us, and he wins. It's amazing. And so here we find an appeal to spend time in the Word, but also a call for prayer. So as we look to the sanctuary, one of the first things that we learn uh, is that the sanctuary is also a model for when to pray. Uh, at the beginning of each day, the sanctuary began with a service known as the daily. And the daily began when the, the sun broke the horizon in the morning. The priest, there'd be a priest stationed looking at the horizon, waiting for the sun to break the horizon. And when it did, he'd grab his shofar and he would blow it. And that was the call for all Israel to turn to the sanctuary, to focus their attention there, and to pray. And while they were doing that, there was an offering that was made upon the brazen altar. It was a burnt offering. And that offering, a burnt offering, was a dedicatory offering. It was an offering of dedication. And while Israel was turning to the sanctuary and praying, it was an appeal for them to dedicate their lives that day to God. That's how they started their day, and that is also how they ended their day. So, and of course, the daily consisted of the activities at the brazen altar, at the labor of water, the menorah, the table of showbread, and the golden altar of incense. The activities here was referred to as the daily. And we're going to be taking a look at that this morning. So how does the morning sacrifice bring my attention to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, that's what Jesus did each day as he started his day. Isaiah the prophet uh, records this for us. Isaiah 54, uh, verse 4 and 5, referring to Messiah it says, the Lord God has given me the tongue of what? The learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. And so the sanctuary and the example of Christ remind me that I start my day in prayer. Why start the day that way? When does a soldier Put on his armor before or after the battle. Before. And so before I go out into the battle that awaits me that day, I go before the Lord and I ask him to give me the armor of light. I ask for his watch care over me as I begin my day. It begins with prayer. It's very interesting too, by the way. I used to wake up with an alarm clock and I do not do that anymore. I have since asked God to wake me up in the morning. And if you ask him to do that, he will wake you up in the morning. But you still have to get out of bed. Amen? Amen. And he may wake you up at times that you may look at the clock and say, Lord, isn't it a little early today? And the Lord may whisper back, I know what's waiting for you today. You need extra time with me. That's right. And so the Lord will wake us up. 
So now let's take a look at the sanctuary as a model for prayer. Entering into uh, the sanctuary, as we approach it, we, we come to the gate. You see a picture there. And the gate, the entranceway into the sanctuary, there was only one. And that's extremely significant. Everything in the sanctuary is significant. There is a lesson in all of it. And there was only one entrance into uh, the sanctuary. And that entrance always had to face east. Always. God gave to Moses and the children of Israel specific instruction that when you set up the sanctuary, make sure that that gate is facing east. And uh, there, there, there are reasons for that. The good Adventist reason for that is that the competing religion of the day was Baal worship, which is sun worship. By the way, that continues to be the competitive religion or worship of, of the true God. Isn't that true? Still is. It was sun worship. And so by facing, and of course, sun worshipers always face the east. By, by putting the entranceway at the east, the children of Israel coming in had to turn their backs to the east as they were heading west. Is that right? And so what it was is it acted as a safeguard to the children of Israel not to fall into Baal worship. But there is another reason, and it is the primary reason. That is the secondary reason. If you will, open your Bibles with me to the book of Genesis. My friend, Brother Neblet today was bringing us to, to Genesis. I want to continue what he started today. Let's take a look. Genesis chapter 3, and what we're looking at here, of course, is the fall. We're going to pick up on a conversation that the Godhead is having here. And the fall has already taken place. And uh, the Lord has already shared with all parties what will be the result. And then in verse 22 of Genesis 3, a conversation then takes place that we want to pick up on. Verse 22, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. By the way, aren't you glad that God did not allow that? What a nightmare to live in this condition forever. How gracious and merciful and wise is our God. Can you say amen to that? So thankful. But let's continue. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the gate of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Very interesting here. That when man left, which direction did he go? He went east. He went out to the east gate. East comes to symbolize walking away from God. When Cain killed his brother Abel, which direction did he go after that? He went east. 
he went further away. Very interesting that the angels are placed there to guard the way. By the way, that's kind of a dual meaning because in one sense, man was not to come and to eat the fruit in a fallen state, yet in another way, it was the assurance that a way would be made open that one day they could come back. And so what we find is that man left east, but to come back to God, which direction would he have to walk? He would have to come west. And so what we find is that everything here reveals a process back to God. Everything from this gate to that throne is a process. There is a message that leads us back. And we will find that the second to the last festival is known as the Day of Atonement, the Day of at one when the Creator and His precious creature are once again reunited. That is the goal. So the gate, it was here at the gate where the priest would meet the repented sinner and would explain to him the role he was about to play. The gate was an important place. But how does the gate point us to Jesus? Well, in John 10, 9 and 14, 6, it says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be what? Saved. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except what? Through me. Jesus is the door, the only way to the Father. And so how does this prompt me to pray? We're going to find this weekend that King David had a very good understanding of the sanctuary and its operation. And David wrote for us the attitude and the spirit we wish to have when we enter into the presence of God. He says, make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord, how? With gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Therefore, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. And so as I begin my morning devotions, I begin by thinking, by thanking and praising God. And, and as I do, um, I have to remember that there is a difference between praising and thanking. Did you know that? There really is. I don't hear about three of you, but that's about right. <laughs> Many people do not understand there's a difference. When we talk about praising, we are acknowledging the wonderful and mighty attributes of God, of his purity, his holiness, his glory, his love, his gentleness, his faithfulness, his patience, his self-control. We're acknowledging that incredible character that summed up means one thing, and that is love. But when we thank God, we're acknowledging the things that he does for us every day. And you know, a funny thing happens when we begin to praise God and to thank God. You know what happens? Our problems begin to shrink and our God begins to get bigger in our minds. Of course, when we murmur and complain, the opposite happens. Our God shrinks and our problems 
get bigger. And we have counsel here from the spirit of prophecy. If more praising of God were engaged in now, hope and courage and faith would steadily what? How many need their hope and courage and faith increased? Right here is where it begins. It's by focusing not on the problem, but on the one who can resolve it. By focusing on the Lord, our God. And, you know, sometimes we can be in such a funk. We can be in such, our, our negative thinking can put us in such, in the gutter that we need help to get out. And when you find yourself there, if you do, just start praising God through the alphabet. Start thanking him through the alphabet. Lord, I thank you for apples. Yeah, okay. It might be a little contrived at first, but you know what? Apples are good for you. And so praise the Lord for apples. Lord, thank you for bees. If you didn't have bees, you wouldn't have flowers and you wouldn't have fruit. Do you with me? Start going through the alphabet and start thinking. You know, we really take a lot of stuff for granted. We really don't thank God for, for this much of what he gives us every hour of our lives. And as we do that, it will strengthen our courage, our faith, and also give us hope. But there is more. Let's continue. Now, as we approach the outer court. In the outer court, we find two uh, items there of two pieces of furniture. One is the, the burnt altar, excuse me, the altar of burnt offering, as well as the laver. And so our first stop is going to be at the brazen altar. Um, the brazen altar, this is where the animals were sacrificed. And the brazen altar is very interesting. You know, whenever you, you look at a photo or a drawing, a, a picture of the, the sanctuary, uh, sometimes have you seen the pictures where the, the tents are leaning right up against the tabernacle? In reality, that wasn't the case. Uh, the, ta the, the tents were very far from the tabernacle. Scholars uh, often refer to uh, Joshua chapter 3, verse 4 as the distance that must have existed between the tent and also the tabernacle. The, the distance was about 2,000 cubits, which if we were to bring that into what we can understand a little better, it's about two-thirds of a mile. Once it was set up, Israel was set up all around the tabernacle in perfect symmetry. It was beautiful order and organization. Why? Because our God is a God of order. That's why. And it reflected. By the way, when Balaam went to curse Israel, it was that order that blew him away and convinced them, him, that they were blessed of God. That order did. Amazing. And so anyway, so here you have this tabernacle, and there was this uh, distance of about two-thirds of a mile, this plaza that surrounded it. So try to picture, if you will, the... Uh, you know, maybe a man named Caleb on the far end of the, of the encampment. And while he's working there, perhaps mending his tent, he remembers something he did. The Holy Spirit brings something to his mind, and he realizes that he had dishonored his maker and had done something wrong to violate his, the law. He knows the role he needs to play next. He goes and picks up his little lamb and begins the journey to the tabernacle. As he gets to the very edge of, nobody really knows, notices him until he gets to the edge of camp. And there's that plaza. And over yonder, the sanctuary is waiting. And as he begins that walk, don't you know that people must have been looking and thinking, hmm, I wonder what Caleb did. 
you know? In every generation, there has been pressure, hasn't there? How important it is to be faithful, brothers and sisters. But every generation has faced that pressure, peer pressure. It's not just young people, it's adults too. Can I hear an amen? That's right. Be faithful. And so when Joshua gets to the, the gate, the priest meets him there. He comes in, and now he is shut in by that curtain, and now no one can see him. It's just him, he, and the priest. And the priest then tells him the role that he now needs to play. And so the Joshua goes, or Caleb goes, and he, he lays his hand on the lamb. This is vitally important. If we're going to understand this message, you've got to follow what happens. Now Caleb confesses his sin, and symbolically that sin now is transferred onto the lamb. Now the sin belongs to the lamb. And now Caleb has to take the life of that lamb. And so he does. And as the blood begins to flow, as the life begins to flow out of the lamb, now the priest catches the blood. So the blood, the sin that belonged to Caleb, now belongs to the lamb, is now transferred into that bull through the blood. The blood becomes a... Uh, a mechanism of transfer. Then the priest, what he does is he walks into the tabernacle and he sprinkles that blood before the curtain so that now the blood, the sin that belonged to Caleb, went to the lamb, went to the blood, is now transferred into the tabernacle. And we're going to talk about what happens next. But it's important to remember that the blood is a, is, a, is a vehicle by which to transfer that sin. So now we're going to leave the sin in the tabernacle and we're going to visit it in a moment. But how does this lamb, how does this experience remind me of my Savior? John 1.29 says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is a beautiful statement. That is hope right there, friends. That lamb gave his life to transfer the sin that belonged to you and me. What joy we have, what hope we have. And so this reminds me during my prayer time, in my mind now, I just finished praising and thanking God. I come to the brazen altar in my mind. And what I do here is I ask God, I begin to do a review over the last 24 hours of my life. And I ask God to reveal to me if there's anything there that stands between my soul and my Savior. Are you with me? Every day, I ask God, Lord, is there anything there? And, and, and this is very important to be specific because sin separates us from God. Isn't that right? And that brazen altar, what it, its goal, what its job is to separate sin from the sinner through the blood of the Lamb. And so I have to be specific. Have you ever had anyone do this to you? Let me ask you. Have you ever had anyone who's really done something to hurt you? I mean... They knew it too. You know what I'm saying? And then they come to you and they say something like this. You know, I'm sorry if I have done anything to hurt you. Have you ever had that? I don't know about you, but that's like the hurt happening all over again because they're not acknowledging what they did. Amen? 
They're not acknowledging it. So just starting out in the morning saying, Lord, if I've committed any sin, forgive me. The Lord is asking us to be specific. Why? Because the whole plan of salvation is based on personal accountability. I have to be responsible for what I have done. That's why we don't, when, when a lion kills a man, we don't send him to court. Because lions can't reason, right? That's what lions do. They eat things. And so we don't take them to court. But when we do something wrong, God wants us to be specific. You know why? Because otherwise there's no hope of undoing it. There's no hope of it ever changing if I don't acknowledge that what I did was wrong. So the first step in healing is diagnosis. If you don't know you're sick, you're never going to go to the doctor. Amen? We go when we know there's a problem. And so for, for the brazen altar to really be uh, profitable to me, I have to be very specific and come to the Lord and say, Lord, I was impatient with my wife yesterday. Will you forgive me? You know, Lord, I kind of came down hard on my kid. You're right. Will you please forgive me? Then, by the way, when I get up off the ground, I got to go and apologize. And not by saying if I've done anything wrong. It's when I did it. Does that make sense? All right. And so this is how I start my day is I go to the Lord in prayer. The next thing now we approach is the labor of water. The labor of water, um, before the priest would minister at the brazen altar or in the uh, tabernacle, what he would do is he would wash his hands and his feet. And so he had a water experience, and that water experience actually prepared him for ministry. That was his call to ministry. Washing your hands, feet, the water experience, ministry. Okay, how does this point us to Jesus? Luke 3, 21 and 23, and I love reading Luke when you're studying the sanctuary because Luke was a, or prophecy, he was a melancholy, and so he's really big into detail. And he, it's really important to him to get that in. And so I really like picking up stuff from his writings. And this is what uh, Dr. Luke had to say. It came to pass that Jesus also was what? Baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was open and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved son and in you I am well pleased. Now, Jesus himself began his at about 30 years of age. So Jesus begins his ministry after a water experience. Does that make sense? And uh, very interesting here, he mentions how old he was. That's why I, I'm so, I appreciate Luke so much. Why is that important? When you study the sanctuary, when God gave instruction to Moses, the Levite that ministered in the sanctuary had to be a certain age before he can begin. He had to be 30. Another evidence of our dear Savior, our Messiah. And so, how does this then prompt me to pray? As after I have asked the Lord um, to, to forgive me, I then go to the labor, and in my mind, what I do now is I rededicate my life to Christ. The, the labor is about dedication that then leads to ministry. By the way, water experience, anybody here who's been baptized has had a water experience, and it's an appeal now. You are ready to do what? Be involved in 
ministry. The labor is a, is a call to ministry. It's a rededication. And so what I do is I recommit my life to the Lord Jesus every single day, not just once, but every day. I recommit my life to him. I ask him to write his laws upon my heart and mind. I ask, I pray to God every day. I say, Lord, please let your will be my will. Each day as I pray to the Lord, I ask God uh, to, take, uh, to take my heart because I can't give it to him. You know, I, brothers and sisters, I can't tell you how many times as I'm appealing to God, I say, Lord, if there was a little door here, I would open it and give you my heart, Lord. I want you to have it forever. My heart and my mind, Lord, I want you to keep it. Then, Lord, I ask you, please, to keep my heart pure and my mind pure for you. I continually ask him to, to do that work in my life of making his will mine. Every day, I recommit my life to the Lord. By the way, every day, I renew my vows to my wife. In my mind, every day, I want to be faithful to my wife. Isn't that true? And it's no different than recommitting ourselves to the Lord Jesus. It's not just one day. It's not just on my wedding day I tell my wife I love her and I never tell her that again. But every day she has a right to know that I do. And so God, I want him to know every day that I am recommitting my life to him every day. Are you with me? If you are, please say amen. amen. So I have recommitted my life to him. And now, as I continue in my mind during my worship time, I enter into the tabernacle. And the tabernacle, you see three items of furniture. You see the lampstand, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense. Uh, let's begin first at the menorah, the lampstand. The work of the priest here was to make sure that the lampstand was always filled with oil. The oil was the source by which the fire burned. The light source that came from the menorah, the fuel was the oil. And in the tabernacle, it was the only light source that originated from the tabernacle, from the holy place, was found there in the menorah. And so how does the menorah point us to Jesus? Well, Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but what? But have the light of life. And so Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. We read about that on his baptism, how he was filled. That became the source of the light that shone from him. And so as I come before the Lord here, I ask, also to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus calls the church today to be the light of the world. And for that to happen, brothers and sisters, you and I have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. God is a gentleman. He won't force anything on anyone. We must ask. Look at this quote. Volume 6, Testimonies 117. We need and must have fresh. Isn't that interesting? Fresh, not stagnant. Not yesterday's, but fresh supplies how often? Every day, all heaven is doing what? How much of heaven? All heaven is waiting for channels through which can be poured the holy oil to be a joy and a blessing to others. Do you realize heaven is waiting to bestow it? Can you just see the angels? You know, somebody over here, they're going, oh, oh maybe they, oh, they're not asking. Oh, oh, there's one. They're not asking. That one's asking. They're waiting. They're anxious for somebody to ask. And so I pray each day I ask for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in my own life because I cannot reflect Christ without it. 
Brothers and sisters, we need to remember something. Knowing truth will not save me unless that truth is placed in here and shines out of the light. There are going to be a lot of Seventh-day Adventists outside of the New Jerusalem at the end who are in for a big surprise. Are you with me? That Holy Spirit, that oil, that transforming power has to be able to come into the life. And so I pray for it. And we're told in scriptures that there's an early rain and there's a latter rain. Isn't that right? And I run into a lot of Adventists, very sincere, who are just praying for the latter rain. And I tell them, dear friend, if there's no early rain experience, the latter rain will not do anything for you. The early rain is about character development. And we're living in the era of the early rain. It is the early rain that prepares us to receive the latter. In fact, don't even worry about the latter. Be focused on the early. And if, you, if we allow the early to do its work, we're going to be ready for the latter. Does this make sense? It's vitally important to remember. And we're living in that time. It's about character development. Truth, however beautiful and, and eloquently it may be spoken, if the Holy Spirit doesn't accompany it, will not change a single heart. We need the presence of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. I ask him also to fill me because of the duties that I have for that day and uh, to give me power to witness for him as well. And I ask him to guide and direct my life. I ask for the oil every single day. By the way, there's no sense in asking something we already have. Isn't that right? We need to ask because we need fresh supplies every day. Well, now we come to the table of showbread. And the table of showbread had uh, two stacks of bread, six each. And each, each stack, each, each loaf represented one of the tribes of Israel. And it was the job of the priest to see to it that every Sabbath there was a fresh supply of bread placed there. It was known as the bread of presence the table of showbread. And it was to remind Israel that it was God who supplied their need every day, physically as well as spiritually. But how does this point us to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the Bible says, Jesus says, I am what? The bread of life. It is Jesus who supplies this. And, John, and, and uh, the apostle uh, Paul brings this out. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And during my prayer time, uh, what I like to do here is uh, I will get my day planner. I still do day planners. There's a story behind that. But I still do my day planner. And I will get my day planner, and every appointment at this point I bring before God. Any, any appointment, any counseling that I have, any Bible studies that I'm involved in, any meetings that I have... Any of my activities, I have it laid out, and I pray to God over it. And it's very interesting, during that quiet time, a number of things will happen. I'll usually have a piece of paper with me, and I encourage you to do this, uh, because God will start giving me ideas. Uh, there are times where the Lord has impressed upon me to change an appointment. There are times that the Lord has impressed upon me that I forgot an appointment. Um, God gives me ideas as I'm saying, Lord, I have this problem. I'm working with this couple. I don't know what to do with it. And the Lord will begin to give me ideas. And it's important to write it down. Why? Because I used to do this. I won't forget that. I don't do that anymore because I know myself very well. And so the Lord actually begins bringing thoughts to my mind and getting me ready to face the day. 
And so I present everything. And if I'm, if I'm, you know, when I was teaching, I would, I would bring up the subjects for that very day. Let's take a look now as we move on and we go to the golden altar. The golden altar uh, actually stood right in front of the curtain that divided the holy place from the most holy. The presence of God, the Shekinah glory, was between the angels in the most holy place. And this is very interesting. Did you know that is when the priest came to the golden altar, it was his ministration there that brought him closer to the, in the presence of God than any other of his activities. Lesson there? It's very interesting that... Um, I've often wondered what, what that must have been like. To be the priest and walk in. And you know that the presence of God, the Shekinah glory, would be radiating over the top of that and knowing that your Creator was only a few feet away. That must have been an amazing experience. Amazing experience. And of course, the incense, uh, King David tells us in Psalms 141 uh, was a symbol of the prayers of the saints as they were all facing it in the morning and uh, facing the tabernacle during the morning and evening sacrifice. But how does the priest playing this role remind me of Jesus? 1 Timothy 2.5 says to us, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, Jesus, the man Christ Jesus. Now listen, how many of you are ex-Catholics? You know this has special meaning, doesn't it? One mediator between God and man. We used to have all those little idols that were those little figures that we had to pray to. No, there's only one that we need to pray to. I love this text. It's very meaningful to me. And we have one mediator. Not only do we have this mediator, but look at this text. Therefore, he is also able to save to the... Oh, wait, wait a second. I missed one. Oh, there it is. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is what Jesus lives for, is to make intercession for you. That's what he lives for. Not only that, but you know, the text could have said, therefore he is also able to save those who come to God through him. It could have said that. But it says, able to save to the uttermost. You know what that means, friend? That means it doesn't matter how far you have fallen, Jesus can pick you up. It doesn't matter how big a sinner you are, he's a bigger savior. That's what that means. That's what that means, to the uttermost. He hasn't met a case he can't help except for the case that won't ask for it. That's the only one. But any that cry out to help, the Lord is there. I want you to look at this quote. This is an amazing quote. 1 Timothy uh, 3, uh, for, excuse me, <laughs> Volume 1, Testimony 346. And it says, at the sound of fervent prayer, Satan's whole host does what? You know, we need to meditate on that quote. At the sound of fervent prayer, Satan's whole host trembles. It doesn't matter how big and strong you are or how small and weak. When you pray fervently, the demons tremble. What does the devil know that you and I do not? What does the devil know that when you go to your knees and you begin to cry out to the Lord that he is scared? By the way, I like the fact that he gets scared. He doesn't mind scaring me. It's nice to know we can give a little back. <laughs> but what is it that frightens him? Let me tell you what frightens him. He knows that you are appealing to his great rival. 
He knows that when you go to your knees and you cry to help, there is one who hears and answers. He knows that when you pray, that you are activating God's strategic air command. And they're about to get involved. And he knows that. He does not want that. Prayer. You know, it's very interesting. During World War II, uh, when the Allies were fighting the, um, the, the, the Axis forces, in Europe in particular, the Nazi army was the most well-trained. It was the best, he was the best soldier in the world. And they had the best equipment. And the Allies came up with a strategy by which to defeat uh, the Nazi armies. And what they would do, they realized, they came to the realization that whoever controlled the air controlled the ground. And so it was an incredible struggle to take mastery of the air. And so you hear of the bombardments and the, and the aircrafts become a very important factor in who wins. Because whoever controls the air controls the activities in the ground. As it is in the physical brothers and sisters, it is in the spiritual. The Bible refers to the devil as the prince of the power of the air. His air superiority has to be challenged. And there's only one who can. And that's heaven's strategic air command led by God. And when we pray and continue to pray, that is what gives victory to our forces on the ground. Are you with me? All the efforts, be they radio, literature, call portering, Bible studies, evangelistic series, every effort of the ground truth moving forward has got to be covered by air cover. There has to be prayer. We, can, we are foolish. We are deceived if we think that we can bring this work to a close in our own efforts without the help of heaven's strategic air command. We have to bathe everything we do in prayer. I want you to know that even me being here, I'm having my, my church and family praying for this very gathering right now. Because the data, however correct or powerful, without the presence of God with it, will not touch a heart. And parents, we've got to remember that as we're seeking to lead our kids to the right path, that if we're not bathing our efforts with prayer, it's foolishness. All we're controlling is outward behavior and not the heart. And that's what has to change. And only the Holy Spirit can do it. Does that make sense? We have to bathe what we do in prayer if there's going to be success. Look at this next quote. Volume 2, Selected Messages, 377. Ministering angels are waiting about the throne for, to instantly obey the mandate of Jesus Christ to answer every prayer offered in earnest living faith. I'm going to read it again. You've got to hang on the words. Remember what I said about spirit of prophecy. Exaggeration was counted to her as a sin. She struggled for precision, always in her writing and her words. There's no exaggeration. Now, knowing that, read this again. Ministering angels are waiting about the throne to instantly obey the mandate of Jesus Christ to answer every prayer offered in earnest living faith. And I have an overactive imagination, and I'm just picturing. In fact, uh, Pastor Lambert, I like there's a little plaque there with Jesus by the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant. And there's a little family praying. And that's the picture I get where Jesus is just sitting there on his throne and there's a family pouring out their heart, a man praying or a, a mother for their kids, just pouring their hearts out in prayer for their children. And Jesus is listening. And all around the throne are these angels and they're watching the family and they're watching Jesus and they know something's going to happen. The muscles are twitching and they're waiting. And Jesus is watching and he turns to an angel 
I picture that. I picture there are times, you know, the sad thing is, how often do those angels wait in vain? Because we don't pray. Because we feel that the situation we're dealing with is hopeless and there's no way out. Not with God. All things are possible with him. Let's not let those angels wait. Okay, now we enter the most holy place. The ark of the testimony is found there. This is the place where the visible presence of God was. And once a year, the, the priest, the high priest, would walk into uh, the most holy place, and there through the service, he would remove all of the sins that had accumulated there through the daily activity uh, of the sins of Israel that accumulated. The high priest would come in and with the blood would cleanse and, and in symbol would take those sins and would go to an animal called, uh, it was a goat, Azazel, the scapegoat, which represented Satan. And now all those sins were on him, signifying that at the very end of this deal, all of the sins of the forgiven people of God are going to be transferred to him, and he's the one that's going to pay for it. Thank you. A few amens. I, 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 you know, it's time for him to get his. You know? And the thing is, though, he doesn't want to. He wants you to pay for it. He wants you to pay for your own sins. He doesn't want to pay for it. But at the very end, God is showing, at the very end, he will destroy those sins and the originator of those sins. But how does that remind me of Jesus? Well, in Daniel 7.13, it tells us the day that, uh, that this process began. The Jews actually refer to a day of atonement as the day of judgment. And here in finding, in, in, in Daniel chapter 7.13, we see this written for us. I was watching in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near, what? Before him. And so what's happening here is that October 22, 1844, that event took place. So if we had been Millerites, and we were there on uh, William Miller's farm, on, the, on, on October 22, 1844, and had read that, we would have been reading what was actually happening in heaven at that moment, which is actually absolutely amazing. And so what does this do for me when I pray? Well, first of all, I remember the hour in which we're living. And I ask God to, to reveal to me the hidden things in my own heart. And David, again, we're going to be, we're going to be drawing ideas from Psalms 19.12, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from my secret faults, David cries out. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 explains why that prayer is important. The heart is deceitful above all things. That's amazing. There's nothing more deceitful than the human heart. That's what that just said. And desperately wicked. It's not just wicked, it's wicked. Brothers and sisters, until you and I come to the place to believe that, there isn't much God can do for us. The biggest problem we have is that we think we're a lot better than we actually are. That's our biggest problem. Nobody goes to the doctor if they don't think they're sick. It's only people that are sick that go to the doctor. And so here, David is saying, even though I'm not aware of it, doesn't mean that there isn't there. That's what David is saying. And so, and then of course, this is uh, God answers, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind, give, uh, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doing. Psalms 139, 23, and 24, again, the appeal by David, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And so I asked the Lord to, uh, to guide me and to, to direct me, but I also asked him to show me what's going on in my own heart. And I asked him that. I said, Lord, you know, I'm pretty good at lying to myself. And the congregation said? Yeah, pretty good at that. 
You know, it's really funny how if somebody else does it, it's a sin. If I do it, it's justified. Isn't that funny how that works? It's amazing. But I ask God, Lord, give me that ISAB that you promised Laodicea. Help me to see myself. No, no. Help me to see Jesus. And in the light of Jesus, help me to see myself. Because there's hope in Jesus. And, and so I, not only that, but this part of, the, uh, of my time with Christ is also the most intimate because it is here that I open my heart to my best friend. I, I have just prayed for everybody. I've prayed for my family. I've, I, I've lifted others up in prayer, intercessory prayer. But now is a time that I spend with God. And here I lift up to him my dreams. Do you have dreams, brothers and sisters? I have a dream one day of, of owning my own piece of property, which God has really given us counsel to live out into the country. And that's something we would love to do. And I pray, take that prayer before my master, and I talk to him about it. I have dreams for my children. I talk to the Lord about that. There are concerns in my life that are a private thing. I take those things to the Lord. It's an intimate time with my Savior, one-on-one -on -one with him. This is the sanctuary prayer. I pray this as I start my day each day. The sanctuary helps me to focus while I am praying. And it reminds me of what to pray for, but also who I am praying to. It also reminds me what Jesus is doing and has done and is about to do. And so the sanctuary actually keeps me connected to present truth every day. It helps me to stay connected to my Lord and Savior. And one thing I do want to say before I close out, you know, when I pray during the golden altar, I forgot to mention this, I make sure that I pray first for my family. I am the priest of my house. That's my job. And I am so thankful for the beautiful wife that I have. You know, it's amazing, I have noticed, that as the years have passed, you know, she is more beautiful to me now than she was the day we were married. And I believe that a, a huge part of that is because as she is drawing closer to Jesus, it is shining through her face and her life. And that, a Christian woman, is an extremely attractive woman. Very beautiful. And my wife is beautiful. It's becoming more so. I also pray for my children each day. And parents, I don't, it doesn't matter how, how small your kids may be, it's not too early to start praying for their spouse. I pray for the spouses of my children, wherever they may be. I don't know where they are. may have met them. I don't know. But I pray for them, and I pray for their parents, that the Lord will keep them godly and keep them focused. I pray for them, but I pray for my children. The Lord will fill them, too, with the Holy Spirit. The Lord will bless us. And so this is the sanctuary prayer. keeps me focused on the Lord. It keeps me focused on his message. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is coming soon. And the whole activity of the sanctuary, it is our time with God in prayer that brings us closer to him than any other activity. Prayer is opening the heart as unto a friend, our best friend. Our friend who gave to us our value and saw us so valuable that he was willing to risk eternal loss. He was willing to risk the universe the throne of the universe, to save you and to save me. And so at this time, I would like to close with prayer as we end this section. Father in heaven,
I thank you so much for the sanctuary. It teaches us so many things, including how to pray. It teaches us, Lord, that we are approaching the high and holy one who, in, who inhabits eternity, to the one who is pure and holy and righteous. And as we view you that way, by beholding, we become changed. I thank you, Father, that the sanctuary reminds us of the important things that we need to be praying for every day, the things that you are ready, able, and willing to give to us, but you're too much of a gentleman to force it. Love never forces. But Lord, heaven is waiting to bestow upon us the blessings that you are eager and anxious and waiting to give us. Father, help us to remember that even though we're facing a situation that may appear impossible to us, Nothing is impossible with you. That you have a way to disentangle us from situations, Lord, that, that we get ourselves into. That you can bring light out of darkness and hope out of despair. That you can bring good out of a bad situation if we will but trust you and to hang on and to allow you to finish. We thank you, Father. We ask this all in Jesus' precious name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.